have uh, Dr. Baker come on up, and I'll get a stool ready for him, and we'll get rolling. Yeah, don't forget to make him feel welcome. I think we're on or not. Is it green? Yeah, it was. It's green. One, two, three. Can you hear back there? I don't think so. One, two, three. One, two, three. Can you hear back there? No. Okay, well, we'll just start talking and hope it'll uh, get better. <clears throat> anyway, I'm very, very thankful for the opportunity to be with you this morning. And I'm very, very thankful for Pastor Jackie Roberts making it possible for me to uh, be up and share with you. And uh, for your ongoing education for yourselves and for your children and for your grandchildren, we have a few things out there in the foyer this morning. A couple of good DVDs on the flood and on the dinosaurs. And dinosaurs have been a big problem for parents because the kids like to learn about them, but all the Information on dinosaurs is always associated with evolutionary propaganda of millions of years, and you'll see tonight that uh, none of that is true. And so I hope you'll come out and, uh, and see the program tonight. Now, I'm really happy to recommend to you my, just, just finished my first volume of a book that addresses all of the evolutionary propaganda in the state-adopted high school biology text. This is my uh, book, Science versus Textbook Evolutions, Science versus Textbook Evolution. Uh, will be two volumes. Right now, I had the first volume on the fossil record. The second volume will be done in about a month, which covers all the other things, natural selection, mutations, age of the earth. But what we do in this book is to quote from the high school books that your kids are using this year in Idaho and in Iowa and New York and Florida, too. And we quote what they, what they say. For instance, in the fossil record, they say such things as, as you know, they believe that small things evolved into invertebrates which evolved into fish, which evolved into amphibians, to reptiles, mammals, all the way to humans. So this traces the whole thing according to their plan. But we, but we quote what the textbook says in each category, and then we show their evidence to the contrary by quoting from authorities around the world who are university professors, university-level researchers, and writers of science magazines such as Nature and Scientific American and so forth. And all the people that I quote as authorities against the high school textbook are themselves evolutionists. So you see what they say, the high school textbook is one thing, but when you talk to the expert who is an expert on fish, fossils of fish, they will admit we have no fossils to show that fish evolved from amphibian, from invertebrates. That's the way I do it. It's all the way through from bacteria all the way to human beings. So that's the that they'll be out there for you. Today. Okay, now we're going on scientific evidence for Noah's flood. So, let's begin. This, this is what God said, and God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps upon the earth after his kind, and God saw that it was good. This means that God, the term after his kind is mentioned ten times this chapter, and it means that we understand it better today than did in the ancient world because of the theory of evolution because of genetics. It means that God created each basic kind, the dog kind, the cat kind, the deer kind, with a genetic program that would allow it to produce its own kind indefinitely. So that from the very beginning, monkeys have been monkeys, sheep have been sheep, horses and by horses. 
By contrast, evolutionists promote the idea that a tiny creatures evolve by, natu by naturalistic processes into larger and larger creatures, which is Im biologically impossible. Then, because of the growth of sin on the earth, when Adam sinned and the people began involving themselves in wrong things, came a time when God had to judge the earth, and behold, I, even I, to bring a flood of waters upon the earth, to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, everything that is in the earth shall die. So God came to a point where he recognized that if he would have allowed things to continue, there would be no human line that was not corrupted through which the Messiah could come to pay for our sins and our generation. So he brought this worldwide flood upon the earth. Next. Among the great things that were left over as traces of that worldwide flood are very important for our study. As floodwaters cover the entire earth, the earth, the flood was global. And by the way, all the people in Christendom, essentially the big speakers who promote the idea that earth is millions of years old, do not believe that Noah's flood was global. Okay, so here we go. Sedimentary layers were deposited all over the earth. We have three kinds of rock, igneous, volcanoes, metamorphic, formed by heat and pressure, and sedimentary rocks are deposited out of water. Sandstone, limestone, mudstone, siltstone, etc. And so these great layers are all over the earth in great layers showing the evidence of Noah's flood. They're often a mile and a half thick. Okay, then we have fossils. Fossils are all over the world on tops of mountains, as you'll see, and these were produced by Noah's flood. All fossils have to be formed catastrophically. They cannot be formed slowly and gradually because all things decay and go back into the soil. They had to be formed covered quickly. Okay, next. Now, 1830, we had the beginning of the Great Rebellion. You read all, all the time with your good pastor here. You've read about many books of the Bible, and they were always talking about the last times and the last times apostasy, which began in 1830 with Lyell, a lawyer, not a geologist, but a lawyer, convincing the new up-and-coming geologists that those sedimentary layers were not developed catastrophically by Noah's flood in a short period of time, but slowly and gradually over millions of years of time by today's erosion rates and by local floods. And today's erosion rates in North America, uh, the Mississippi erodes material into the ocean. It can be measured and it is about uh, at one inch for every five, 300 years, one inch for every 300 years. So obviously, if, it, if that happened, then it would take 100 years to bury a mouse. So there's no possibility you'd have mice fossils, okay? So that was his theory, it's called uniformitarianism, and he promoted the idea that there has never been any geological processes on the earth except for what we can see today. What we see today is what local erosion and local floods. And as you know, been observant, local floods been, have occurred throughout your lifetime. You've read about them, you see them on television, and local floods, as you know, do not produce sedimentary rock. They produce mud. And they don't produce fossils. They produce carcasses, dead people or dead animals, but not fossils. Next. Then Darwin came along after he read, after he read Lyell's book and took the leap of faith that the earth was millions of years old. Then he, read, then he wrote Dark Origin of Species, in which he said, uh, the best explanation for the origin of mice and apes and humans and goats and sheep was not by creation, but by totally naturalistic processes, slowly and gradually over millions of years of time, mutations, natural selection, and so forth. Okay? 
That's the great apostasy. Next. Now, God was not surprised. Don't worry. He knows everything, the end from the beginning. So he prophesied, actually prophesied, that these two areas of apostasy would come upon the earth. So we read in Peter, knowing this first, that in the last times, scoffers, knowing this, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days, scoffers walking after their own. It says in the last days, not in the days of the apostles, not in the days of the Middle Ages when everyone was a Christian in the, in the Western Hemisphere, but in the last days where you and I lived, that scoffers will come. Scoffers are people who reject the, the teaching of Scripture. Walking after their own lusts mean they are materialists. And, go ahead, saying, where is the promise of his coming? See, they are doubting the second coming of the Lord. They're, they're saying, this isn't going to happen. They know that Christians believe in the first coming of the Lord. They also believe in the second coming. And they're saying, where is the promise of his coming? And this is their argument. For they say, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue on the earth as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, there has been no special creation. There have just been, since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue from little creatures evolving to more and more complex one by totally naturalistic processes. All things continue as they were from the beginning. See, for them there is no end. But God told us he, finished, he created the heavens and the earth in six days and ended his work. Creation is a completed thing. But for them, it's a continuing thing. It's going on indefinitely. And then... God says, for this they are willingly ignorant of. Willingly ignorant means that there's plenty of data to support two, two great facts on the earth. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water in the world, in the water. This means God is saying that there's plenty of data to support special creation by the word of God, if you open your eyes and look at it. And something else. And whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. So God is saying there's plenty of data, plenty of facts, plenty of information to support two things, special creation by the word of God and the worldwide flood. So we're going to look at that now. So here is sandstone. This sandstone was once exactly like the sand which is by the seashore, exactly. Now it's so hard you, you have to bust it with a rock. When the Noah's flood brought it in into the, over the land, it's solidified into sandstone. The mud became mudstone. The silt became siltstone, and so forth. Okay, none of that is going on today. See? So the idea of uniformitarianism is if you believe with your eyes, if you see the world and believe what you see with your eyes, you can see that there's no, no sedimentary layers made today. So it could be, uniformitarianism could not be right. Next. Why is this the case? Because the worldwide flood was a worldwide flood. And it was two, formed by two means. The breaking up of the fountains of deep with the subterranean volcanoes and 40 days and 40 nights of rain. So there's vast changes in the atmosphere. The water canopy, the, the vapor canopy that covered the earth was being rained down, which there's been cha great changes, radical reduction, atmospheric pressure. And all these things together created tons of cementing agents in the water. And you can learn about these cementing agents in your local college. They are, as you can see, calcite, iron oxide, and silicons. So the water was filled with cementing agents, so when the sand settled, it began to settle just like cement. Okay? Then we had subterranean volcanoes as well as uh, uh, above-land volcanoes, and among the things that they do, they spew tons and tons and tons of gases and water into the air, sulfur dioxide, carbon dioxide, and so forth. And the effect of these was very significant also. Next. So you have the world uh, all over the land and so forth, covered with gases, very, very likely, according to the proximity to the, to the volcanoes, many humans did not die of the floodwaters, they died from the gases, asphyxiation from the gases. 
so forth, as well as the floodwaters. But these gases are going on all over the world, and not evenly all over the world, but sporadically because they're in different places, and falling into the water. And so sulfur dioxide, when it falls into the water and on the land, it becomes sulfide. And sulfide, when it uh, comes upon water, has an exothermic reaction causing it to heat up. And so these gases, volcanic gases landing in the water, cause the waters to be acidic. And the acidity of the waters dissolve minerals into solution. So you have liquid minerals like what? Colloidal silver, so forth, all right? And gold can make colloidal also. So the waters were filled with minerals in solution. And the minerals, so when an antelope or elk died, floating along is buried, it's in waters which have minerals in solution. So the minerals in solution, liquid minerals, permeate the bone and replace the bone with minerals, creating fossils. All right, next. So, so fossils, if you read any of your high school textbooks or college textbooks, are caused by permineralization. But if you have a bone of a, of a hip bone of a cow and a piece of tin or gold, you can't push it into the bone. How to get there? It had to be minerals in solution. And they had to be in in an uh, area of mud so they couldn't be moving away from it. They had to be stationary so that the water could flow into it. Okay, there we go. So here's to uh, emphasize this a little bit for you. This is a shrimp. This shrimp was found, buried shrimp, buried during Noah's flood. And we're going to look at the scientific literature what it says. The whole shrimp was preserved. The whole shrimp. Okay, watch. Here we go. The mussels were preserved by a what? Combination of acidic waters and a low oxygen content as the battle, animal was buried slowly and gradually over millions of years of time, right? No, rapidly, rapidly. So again, this is supporting the flood and not uniformitarianism. Next. So the question is, are these great sedimentary layers uh, best explained by local floods over millions of years of time or by a global flood in a short period of time? Here we go, next or a global flood over a short period of time. Okay, next. So, well, there are three witnesses to the flood. Three witnesses. Number one, God's witness in Genesis and all throughout the Bible and Psalms. The second is human witnesses. And the third is the earth. Job says, speak to the earth and it shall teach thee, right? So here is some of the human witnesses we're going to look at. In Egypt, in this regard, we're reminded of the sacred sermon, a hermetic text of Egyptian origin that speaks with awe of lordly men devoted to the growth of wisdom who lived before the flood. This is ancient Egyptian literature, which came along thousands of years before Darwin and Lyell ever came about, who lived before the flood and whose civilization was destroyed. Next. So Egypt is one, as you know, of the oldest, oldest cultures in the world. Okay. With the deluge, in tradition, the Egyptians connected the commemoration of the dead. Deluge is another word they use for worldwide flood. And the Egyptians connected the deluge with their uh, uh, commemoration of the dead. It's called the Festival of the Dead. Mo many of the world cultures, ancient world cultures, had a three-day festival of the dead. Okay? And they uh, connected the flood to that. This was a day when the pagans two or three hundred years after Noah, showed sympathy for the people who died in the flood. Okay? Now, notice this. Next. 
This ceremony was observed on the 17th day of Athar, that's an Egyptian month, which corresponds to the date given the Mosaic account of the flood. What's the Mosaic account of the flood? Genesis. So here's an amazing thing. As you know, the, the Egyptians had the children of Israel in bondage for 400 years. So they've been enemies for thousands of years, nations. Yet, not only do these ancient nations both have an account of a global flood, but they have it starting on the same day of the month. That is incredible. Notice what it says for the Egyptians here. On the 17th day of Ather. Now let's look at Moses' account. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, same day where all the fountains of the great deep broken up. That's an amazing fact of history. Next, and in Africa, different parts of Africa, we have some more. The natives of Sudan call Lake Chad the Lake of Noah, and they believe that a flood submerging the whole earth had its origin in this lake. This is Persia. Persia is a modern country of what? Iran. The Persians had a tradition that the world had been corrupted by Ahriman, the prince of darkness. It was necessary to cover it with the flood so as to sweep away its impurities. The natives of Greenland have a tradition according to which ten generations of men had lived upon the earth when a universal flood came and the earth capsized like a boat and the whole human race was destroyed. Okay, now we're moving into the western hemisphere. And in the western hemisphere we have many, many accounts of the global flood in North America and in South America. Let's take a look at one of them. Papago Indians, Arizona, then a fearful catastrophe shattered the golden days. A great flood destroyed all flesh wherein was the breath of life. These are quoting from secular sources. Okay, next. Northern Hemisphere, way north, in Alaska, in Alaska. Next. Having been born in a dream that the deluge would desolate the earth, Boo built the raft, which he saved himself, his family, and all the animals. Today, we have at least five 150 accounts of a global flood from the various cultures of the world. From Asia to Europe to North and South America. 550. Obviously all these people cannot be making up the same fictitious story because how would the people in Asia know what the people in South America were coming up, right? These came from the children of, of Noah. And the reason that they differ a little bit because God did not preserve any of them himself except the Hebrew account. That is perfect. The others were word of mouth. And imagine telling the same story over for 3,000 years. Something's going to be changed. But they're all saying the same thing. Global flood, one family saved, water, ark, so forth. Next. So here's the physical evidence. A lot of it, a lot of it. More than you could say anyone in this time this morning. But among them are vast sedimentary layers, too great to be accounted for by local floods. For instance, here we have the Great Red Sandstone. This great red sandstone is in Colorado. Now you notice it's a solid block of sandstone, which shows it could not have developed over millions of years of time of local floods because there's no forest or soil evidences in between now. This is a solid mass. This is deposited in the same event. You know how it is today. What's your area over here? It's all lava, but, but there's sagebrush on top of it, isn't there? The rain has produced floor, okay? There's none there. There's no evidence of that. If this happened over millions of years of time, there'd have to be areas where you'd have forests and sagebrush, but it's just one block, like a block of Swiss cheese. How big is it? 200,000 square miles. 200,000. So I don't think the Colorado River had anything to do with that, right? Now, 
Here's the Grand Canyon. Many of you have been there, and the Grand Canyon is one of the best places to see sedimentary layers in the world. It's full of sandstone and limestone. And this, this has been studied so many times that the geologists have all these layers, which you can see up there. The red one is the red wall limestone, and down below on the bottom is the tapete sandstone. And there's others, little ones up there, and you go down there and you have books that they have them all named and so forth. They tell you how big they are and so forth. And so there's a great question about the Colorado River creating the Grand Canyon was you know, preposterous. Uh, no way in the world could that have happened. That, but that's not the question. The question is, where did these layers come from? See, sediment layers are deposited out of water. They are not original earth. They are not original earth. They were deposited by water at some time historically. So where did they come from, and how big are they? Now at the bottom, what we say? We have the tapete sandstone. So let's imagine you and I were down there in a life raft. They do that all the time, take people down there. We're going down the canyon. They stop and have a little lecture. So here we are in the river, and we're looking over here at this side. The tapete sandstone is there, and the tapete sandstone is there, and the guy's lecturing. So someone may ask the question, how far back does that go? So if we get a, make a, get a little drill of some sort and get inside the drill and p drill into it, we could go back. How far would we go back that way or that way before the sandstone layer ended? It was just plain dirt or something like that. So would we go back 10 feet? Would we go back 100 yards? Would we go back a mile? Would we go back 10 miles? Well, geologists are able to measure these things, and this is where the tapete sandstone goes. So the idea that that could have deposited by local rivers is foolishness. This is one, one contiguous layer of sandstone that goes over the entire United States, essentially. And the people in the Grand Canyon, they just see it right there. Oh, there it is. For all, for all they know, most of the people who go there, it's, it, it ends about two miles down the road. Now, on top of that, there's layer upon layer upon layer. We have the St. Peter sandstone. And this is the St. Peter sandstone here. The orange, the gray, I mean, the uh, kind of uh, mauve color, not the green, but the mauve color. You see it stretched all over the United States. And the reason it has little breaks is because erosion. The flood went on and it came back off. But that's one solid group of sandstone. So the idea that the Colorado River carved the Grand Canyon is a useless question. The question is, where did those, sand, where did those layers come from? Okay, next. So the other thing is coal. The coal was created by Noah's flood. No, coal is caused by compact, compacted plant material. You know that. Okay, next. So there it is. It takes 20 feet, 20 feet of compacted plant material to make one foot of coal. So that means, since we have coal seams that are 100 feet thick, that there had to be an all, a lot of plants there at the same time, didn't they? So what would happen? Up in Oregon, for instance, you have all these hundreds and millions of trees. 40 days and 40 nights would rain so hard you would wa wash the soil away and the trees, the forest, would fall all at the same time and float. And they're floating in water with what in the water? Minerals in solution. So eventually some are going to be waterlogged, they're going to sink, others, depending where the minerals were, are going to be petrified, right? So next. But the evolutionary story has happened over millions and millions of years, like over hundreds of thousands of years, trees dropped their leaves and created humus. And over hundreds of thousands of years, the humus solidified into peat bogs. And over hundreds of thousands of years, the peat bogs finally solidified into coal seams, anywhere from one foot to 100 feet thick. All right, 
that is anti-science because we have science is observation. Everywhere you go in the world today, you'll find three things, either a swamp or a peat bog or a coal seam. You never find a swamp becoming a peat bog or peat bog become a coal seam. That's a quote from, so here's, see that, that's how they are. See the arrows point to the coal seam and above that would be sandstone or limestone all the way up there. That's where they're found all over the earth. So it means what happens is that these, these, this coal seam, remember it was plants and it was floating along this water bog and then on top of it, sediment, sediments, sand or mud is coming and compressing it, compacting it and becoming coal. Next. So here again, Dr. Hooker addresses this. The furthermore, the theory that peat forms coal is quite unbelievable on its face. No place on earth does peat even faintly resemble coal. Peat, wherever found, is still peat. Neither is there any indication whatsoever that coal is being formed today in swampy areas anywhere on earth. The notion is pure fantasy. Not science, not science, pure fantasy. Okay, next. Go ahead, let's skip this because we were short this morning. Uh, next. Okay, poly street fossil trees. Poly street fossil trees. Poly means many. Strata means strata. So here we have the flood laying down one layer, then two layers, then three layers, then four layers. We have trees that are actually going through all four layers. So, and this one's in a coal seam. At the bottom is in a coal seam. It's about 43 feet long. Well, at 5,000 years per foot, this, you would have to believe this, this tree stayed alive for 150,000 years while the sediments slowly and gradually formed around it at 5,000 years per foot. See, that's their average now. Every, to them, to them, every foot of sandstone represents 5,000 years of time, okay? So that's impossible. So polystrate fossil trees are evidence of catastrophic burial. Next. So let's skip this one too. Petrified trees, go ahead. Petrified trees are found in almost, petrified wood is found in almost every state in the United States. And here in Arizona are petrified forests. This forest here, next, is 10,000 petrified logs in Arizona, all petrified, which means they're mineralized and they didn't grow there. They came in by current action. So they were still floatable until like, little by little until finally they got so thick with minerals that they all stopped right there. And they were brought in by current action. Okay, next. This man who here, who I use quote from, is a secular dinosaurologist. Talking about those trees, they're also stumps. Notice what he says. Clusters of stumps were buried upright with some penetrating much as three meters. That's nine feet of overlying sediment in evidence of the rapidity with which sediments accumulated. Not slow and gradual. He said those stumps would not be preserved if they weren't covered rapidly. So you only see uniformitarianism in the high school textbooks. In the real world, all you see is catastrophism in the with regard to geology. Next. Now this is Yellowstone National Park where we have trees, stumps buried upright. And there's about 37 horizons, two here, one here, up here on Yellowstone Ridge and in Galton Ridge. And they call them fossil forests that grew over millions of years of time, slowly and gradually became petrified. But creation people have gone up there and said, no, that is not a good explanation for a number of reasons. One, because many of them have no roots, and you can't grow without roots. <clears throat> Secondly, most of these petrified trees at Yellowstone are species of trees which do not currently grow there. So they had to come from somewhere else. But they say, well, then how did they get there? You can't bury stumps upright. Well, that's what they said until, next, Mount 
Uh, see how high they are above the valley there? Okay, next. Until Mount St. Helens came along. When Mount St. Helens came along, it blew, as you remember, what, thousands and thousands of trees into Spirit Lake. You saw them floating back and forth there and rubbing off their bark. The bark is falling down. If you were to come back six months later, you would have seen this floating upright. And a year later, a year later, creation divers have gone down there. And because there's mud and bark on the bottom, they have fallen down and they have stuck upright under there. Consequently, the secular geologists have had to change their attitude, and now they say deposits of recent mud flows on Mount St. Helens demonstrate conclusively that stumps can be transported and deposited upright. These observations support conclusion that some vertical trees in the Yellowstone Fossil Forest were transported in a geological situation comparable to that of Mount St. Helens. So in other words, Mount St. Helens was a what? Catastrophic event. Next. Finally, we come to fossils. Fossils are the animal remains that have been saved or uh, preserved by permineralization, right? Okay. This is Dinosaur National Monument in Utah, which there are thousands and thousands and thousands of dinosaur bones. They've taken several dinosaurs out there, and then they said, we don't take any more. We just want to expose them so people can come over here and see how they really looked. And so you have two, two, for many years, two geologists worked there just exposing these bones so people can see. And it's probably, probably as big as your whole church, this area here, a little bit higher, and at least this long. These, these animals were drowned, and they were brought into this basin, and they swayed back and forth in the basin, banging against each other and against limbs, tearing their limbs to pieces, thousands and thousands of them. Next. This is the agate bone bed in Nebraska. The agate bone bed in Nebraska is estimated to contain about 9,000 fossilized animals. Uh, in the ancient world, animals didn't all, all go to the same graveyard for sentiment. You know, they died where they died. But this is one deposit of 9,000 animals. This was a catastrophic experience. Furthermore, today, all over the world, animals are dying everywhere, aren't they? But what do you see if you get there in time? Some hide or some bone, maybe an old cow bone, cattle bone, but no fossils. And what about all those bison that died in the days of the cowboys and Indians? You can't find them because what? They're biodegradable, they go back into the soil. So fossils were created only once in human history during the Great Flood when they had all these conditions. Next. Finally, we have inland deposition of marine organisms. Marine, for your younger kids, is three things that live in the sea and the ocean. Okay, next. So we uh, see all these white things there? Those white things are fossilized seashells. <clears throat> and where is this? It's not Newport Beach. It's not uh, Huntington Beach. It's not Laguna Beach. It's Arizona. It's a strange place to look for seashells, isn't it? And these seashells are all over the world. They're in Nevada, too, at 7,000 feet elevation. These are oyster shells in the middle. Let's look up close. Next. These beautifully preserved oyster shells are 10 miles inland in Peru. So they were washed in there by the flood, and then they were quickly covered by another layer which protected them from solar radiation and oxidation, so they were preserved perfectly because they were permineralized. So the Peruvians were coming, doing a road cut, so they blasted out so you could see both sides, and what will happen now, because the sun can hit on them and the air, they will start decaying away. Next. So this high school textbook's telling the kids that there are seashells on top of Mount Everest. 
Mount Everest is a limestone. It's made of limestone, and limestone is formed only in seawater. So the water was coming across the land, and limestone is formed, and then it had the uplifting, which God talks about in Psalm 104, creating these mountains. And what's on top of the seashells? Next. Tracks. Quick, quick. Dinosaur tracks are here and here. <clears throat> we know that the dinosaurs, that the flood came 4,500 years ago. The evolutionists believe, it, believe that these tracks, the dinosaurs became extinct 65 million years ago. So these tracks are supposed to have lasted 65 million years, which they didn't. But they did last 4,500 years. Now, why is it that you and I go out and make tracks? We're walking along the seashore, and the tracks are washed away in a matter of minutes. So if we go out back, back up, it'll take maybe an hour. If we go out in the woods when it rains, make tracks, those tracks will be destroyed in hours or days or weeks. So our tracks don't last any time at all. Why do the dinosaurs last for 4,500 years? Because the dinosaurs were, say, here, and it starts raining 40 days and 40 nights. They're traveling, trying to get out to higher ground to get because their food supply is being wiped away. By the time they get 10 miles or 15 miles over there, the native soil there has been washed away because the topography is uneven. 40 days and 40 nights would be probably about two feet a day at least. And in case you think I'm exaggerating, you can find that now. Books will tell you that in the days when the Panama Canal was being built, it rained two feet a day during the rainy season. Two feet a day. So two feet a day would be 80 feet in uh, 40 days. So anyways, really washing things away. So by the time the dinosaurs got there, the native soil, see our, our tracks are made of native soil, sand or soil. So it's easily destroyed. But there, by the time they got there, the native soil had been washed away and because the land is uneven, new sand or mud was being washed in there containing what, minerals, uh, cementing agents, cementing agents. So when they got there, they were actually walking on freshly deposited cement. And that's why these tracks are preserved. And where are these tracks? Except for Antarctica, which is all ice, these dinosaur tracks are found on every single continent of the world. So this thing had to be going on everywhere. Next. Ripple marks. Next. So these ripple marks down at the beach will be washed away, will be moved, moved all day long by the water because they're soft. In the desert, the wind will move these back and forth all day long because it's soft. But these dinosaur tracks, next, these dinosaur tracks will have never moved. These are fossilized, excuse me, these ripple marks have never moved because they are fossilized ripple marks showing how fast the lithification took. This limestone or sandstone was washed in, and then as the water rocks back and forth making these ripple marks, it solidifies so quick as to preserve those ripple marks. And geologists tell us that of all the geological things in the world, fossilized ripple marks are the most ubiquitous. Next. And here they are all over. Next. And what? With dinosaur tracks, meaning that the dinosaurs were alive at the same time this unique phenomenon was going on. Okay. Next. So here's our last category, a rapid evidence of rapid burial and lithification. For you younger kids, lithification means just going from soft to hard, like when your dad makes the cement. A sidewalk in your house, you remember, it was all gooey at first, and you could step in it and it slushed down, and then it got harder and harder. That's called lithification, going from soft to hard. Okay, next. This is Camarasaurus, the best-known dinosaur in America because 
So many of its parts were found. Many times dinosaurs have found a limb here, and a skull here, and a rib cage here, or half of it. This dinosaur has found almost every single part of it, so we can study it really, really well. It's called Camarasaurus. It's one of the sauropod dinosaurs with long necks, long tails, long necks. Okay, now we're going to quote from an evolutionist who is a dinosaurologist. This skeleton was preserved almost completely intact with just a few bones missing or lying slightly out of natural position. It must be supposed that the carcass of this animal was buried very rapidly. Not at 200 years per inch, not at 5,000 years per foot, but very rapidly, or the bones would be all scattered. Okay, next. So we have a Calvary Chapel picnic. We have a wonderful time out in the woods, and we go away and leave six eggs. So how long do you think those eggs would last out there in the woods? Not very long because they'd be eaten, what, by predators? Or they would rot, right? Okay, these dinosaurs have been around for 4,500 years. When the dinosaur laid these eggs up in Montana, before they could hatch, before they could be eaten by predators, before they could rot away, they were covered quickly with a soft, siltic material, creating the sedimentary rock with minerals in solution, preserving them so quickly that in some of the cases they have the fossilized embryo inside. And these are found all over the world, and they found different eggs. They have to figure out what kind of eggs they were. No one knows except on the times when they have fossilized embryos inside, and they have many of them. So this is talking about rapid, rapid, rapid. Next. So McFarland says it can definitely be said that through all the geologic remains in which fish remains occur, a large proportion of the remains consists of entire fishes or of sections in which every scale is in position. Most of the time when you go to the museum, you see the fish bones, right? You know, see the bones? The bones are preserved. These, he's saying that there are tons of fish preserved so quickly that the whole fish is preserved with every scale. And fishermen know that scale fish begin to decay away pretty rapidly. But here we have them all over the world, different places where the whole thing scales and all. So that had to be buried rapidly under unique conditions for sedimentary rock and minerals in solution. Okay? All of this conclusively proves that when myriads of fish were simultaneously killed, their bodies were deposited and preserved intact either immediately or within a few day or two at most after death, not sold in gradually at 200 years per inch. Next. How about that? Here we have a fish in the process of eating another fish. You think that could happen over 200 years of time? They could just do like that? Next. They're found year after year after year. Next. Now, we have to remember that when these fish, they eat the little ones, they always eat them head first. There was a time when the big fish was this, trying to get food, was this far away. So it means the water was liquid for it to move closer to its prey. At the time, it just, in many cases, when it just got that far, the water became solid rock like that, or almost solid rock, and that's so they couldn't move, and then solid rock within an hour afterwards. And this occurs all over the world. This, this is rapid, rapid lithification. No local floods could ever, ever, ever in a million years do that. And furthermore, remember, fish do not swim in rocks. This was pure water, right? Okay, next. This is the ichthyosaurs. Ichthyosaurs are the sea dragons mentioned in the Bible, sea dragons. And we have different kinds, ichthyosaurs, plesiosaurs, plesiosaurs, mosasaurs. The pl These ichthyosaurs are beautifully preserved. Look at that, how 
Theoretically, uh, Bob and Christine and I were out to the foot museum the other day, and it said, or uh, Hagerman, a big chart on the wall said, for the, all these kids to read, uh, fish in the ancient world would die and float slowly to the bottom. And then it said, over millions of years, they would be slowly covered by sediment and become fossils. Well, first of all, fish do not have that privilege. The fish that die are eaten before they hit the bottom. And secondly, if they did in that material, material they would rot away in a matter of a year or be eaten by microorganisms and so forth. So that's impossible. But these, look how perfectly these are preserved. These were swimming through the water. And in more than one occasion, they look through the ribs, and in the ribs they see little babies inside those rib cages, fossilized. And in more than one occasion, we have this. A baby ichthyosaur in the process of coming out the birth canal. Before it could fall away, it would become rock, it would become that, that solid. So this is catastrophism on a magnificent, amazing scale as found all over the world, these types of things. Ichthyosaurs and so forth. Next. Here's a shrimp. Now today, if you're at the beach and a shrimp died and washed up on the shore hitting the seaweed, how long would it take to knock off its antenna? Not long. This is, this is perped so quickly that the antenna are still perfectly preserved. We're talking about rapidity. Next. This is our last one. Pterosaurs. Pterosaurs are also mentioned in the scriptures. <clears throat> and in Brazil, they found some new ones. Here we go. The Araripe pterosaurs are miraculously preserved. When an animal died in the Araripe water, it was quickly coated with a layer of sediment. Next. How quickly the nodules formed is hard to say, but judging from the presence of fossilized muscle and sometimes even bacteria on the skin of Araripe animals, it could have happened within hours. So, you see what Peter was talking about? For this, they are willingly ignorant. Geologists of the world know about these things. They know a few or several of them, but they refuse to interpret it honestly. So let's review what Peter was saying. For this, they are willingly ignorant of the evidences of a global flood. Let's review them. Go ahead. Vast quantities of sedimentary rocks, vast fossil graveyards, deposition of marine fossils, shells all over the world, many flood accounts, more than 500, preservation of femoral markings, dinosaur tracks on every continent but, but Antarctica, evidence of rapid burial, eggs, embryos, ichthyosaur babies. And by the way, I said dinosaur <coughs> tracks have been found on every continent but Antarctica. But dinosaur fossils have been found in Antarctica. Okay, so in our last two or three minutes, <coughs> I just want to uh, say to you that what you've seen today are the facts of science. This was not a Bible presentation, was it? This was facts of science. And this is important for us to realize because your kids are being inundated with evolution and millions of years every day they go to high school. And some of them have come to the conclusion because they're taught differently that what we learn at school is science and what we learn at church are stories. So I hope this will help you with your children and your grandchildren that you have concrete evidence, concrete evidence of the worldwide flood, of the global flood, and therefore you have concrete evidence of the reliability of Genesis and the reliability of the scriptures. And this is very important for us because you and I are hoping for our salvation. We're hoping for salvation is going to come. We're hoping for the second coming of the Lord. But we can't see the future. But it's interesting to see that what we can see verifies what God said in the past.
what we can see verifies what God said in the past. And remember to Nicodemus says, if I tell you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe when I tell you of heavenly things? So I hope this will be a great encouragement to your faith and to your children. God bless you. That was pretty awesome. Let's uh, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you that we can just see evidence behind our faith, Lord God. That we would realize that uh, the, the stories that were told long ago are not just stories. They're truth. We can see them preserved for us in the rock. We can see them preserved in ancient writings. And we can know that the things that you told us are true.